Hey, Benbrook, it's good to see you guys. My name is Wes Dixon. I'm the youth pastor uh, from Gateway Church, uh, and I'm here to give you guys a bit of a message. Uh, we're going to be speaking on the Psalms in this message, uh, specifically Psalm 103, because it's one of my favorite ones. Uh, now, what you might not know, or maybe you do, uh, the Psalms were songs and hymns written uh, from Israel to God. They wrote about things that were uh, that happened in their life, the past events that God had moved, and uh, oftentimes what you find in these Psalms is uh, stories about who they are as God's people and who God is to them and how God interacts with them. And uh, Psalm 103 is no different. But the key is that a lot of these were actually sung hymns. The people of Israel would sing these together, and Psalm 103 uh, is no different. Now, I I'm a bit of a, a music junkie myself. I, I love concerts. I listen to an inordinate amount of music on Spotify each year. Uh, it's just a big thing in my life, and I've listened to music since I was a kid. I remember when I was younger getting my first iPod. Now, I realize, you know, maybe some of you are a little um, older in there. You, you didn't have iPods when you were kids. And I, and I don't know, um, you know, how all of you listen to music on the go. I imagine maybe you strapped, you know, record players to your backs or something like that. Maybe, um, you know, you held one of those giant jukeboxes on the side of your head. But if you need to know, an iPod is kind of like a really tiny jukebox or a really tiny record player. For those of you who are maybe a little older, uh, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Um, but anyways, I remember having my iPod when I was younger. I got this little like iPod mini, and my dad ended up loading songs onto it. And uh, he loaded up songs onto it like Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple, Pinball Wizard by The Who, and American Pie by Don McLean. I, I list those because those are specifically the songs that were on like, my first playlist ever. And it's funny because when I listen to these few songs now, it's a very nostalgic experience for me. Yes, they're, they're good songs on their own, but they actually kind of take me back to childhood. See, regardless of what's in the songs or how much I like them, it's just a positive, nostalgic experience for me. And it's really interesting because I, I don't know about you, but this happens to me with all sorts of experiences. The songs that I listen to, they bring me back to these experiences. I mean, romantic ones are obvious. I have songs that I remember very uh, fondly because they were spent with people that I love. I have songs that I hate because I, I liked or listened to them when I was maybe going through a breakup with somebody. And so no matter how good that song is, I don't have the best memories in relation to it. I'm sure all of you can sympathize, sympathize that with that on some level. And maybe for you it's a wedding song, the song that you danced with your spouse the first time. It's special for you. Maybe there is an album that you listened to in a summer way, way back in your teens or your 20s that you listened to and it just kind of takes you back to that moment or that frame of time. You see, uh, music has this incredibly powerful ability to, to transport us back into time. Uh, we associate music with feelings and memories and thoughts and emotions, and they're kind of inextricably tied together. You can't separate them, feel, uh, music and experiences and feelings. Uh, so how we judge a song often isn't based on the merit of the lyrics or the melody or the beat. Uh, for some songs, they're just judged based on the memories and the feelings we associate with them. And I bring this up because I think this is often the case for many of us when it comes to God. How we understand and feel in regards to God is often based on the experiences that we've had in relation to him. Uh, let me describe what I mean. For many of us, we've grown up in the church, and so when I talk about God, or if anybody does for that matter, you might have a positive or nostalgic experience in response to the idea of him. You might associate the ideas of love and compassion and grace with God because you experience that within your family context and your church family context. But for others of you, you maybe grew up in a not so healthy church or family context. You grew up in a context where there was lots of judgment from the people that you knew and loved and people were stern in the church and they had a rough shell and people were often hard and they oftentimes were not so kind. And so when you think of God, you think 
think of a hard, scary, and a tough, and maybe even a mean God. Uh, those are the feelings that you associate with them, whether or not you're told stories uh, that contradict that. Again, like the songs that we listen to, the experiences that we have and associate with God often paint our picture of him. And this is true for all of us. Uh, These can be deep and explicit things that happen. Maybe there are key moments of joy or trauma that you've experienced that have shaped the way that you think about God. But there can also be subtle things that shape your picture too. The way we think about God can be slowly and maybe even without our notice changed and distorted over time. Uh, Maybe it's the people you interact with. the songs you listen to, the the books that you read, or even uh, the sins maybe in your life. All these things can slowly and surely change and modify the way we see God. And look, I'm not excluded from this. And this is why today I want to talk about Psalm 103, because for me personally, the psalm has been a consistent rock and reminder of who God truly is. And the ups and downs of my life, I have routinely come back to the psalm to get a clearer or more accurate picture of who God is, regardless of what my feelings are uh, from this moment to the next. And so today, in light of all this, we're going to read uh, Psalm 103 together and ask this really simple question, what is God truly like? What is God truly like. And I I say and emphasize the word truly here because I mean it when I say this. Regardless of the feelings and the experiences that we all might have had in our lives, the question I want to ask today is this. What is God truly like? What is the truth about God himself? Now, we've, uh, now uh, I'm not going to read the, the psalm in its entirety all the way through. I'm going to jump together at a few parts. So uh, you can go ahead and skim uh, the psalm through while I'm talking, or you can just open up to the passage, but I encourage you to do so. There's also going to be some slides on the screen that are going to come up, but we're going to talk about a few key parts. So I'm just going to jump into talking about the text right now. So the psalm begins with the psalmist invoking the idea that we're to praise God. He calls, uh, he calls out, praise the Lord my soul, praise his holy name. Uh, This is a well-repeated phrase in the psalm. You see it quite a bit. And even in our lives, bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, worship his holy name. You might have heard that uh, phrase before. It's a song that people usually sing. Uh, We sing it repeatedly here in the the modern church. It's the song 10,000 Reasons. It's a very popular refrain, praise the Lord, O my soul. Um, And the question that this begs at this point is, why? And the psalmist kind of answers this. Well, why should we praise God? Well, we should because we need to forget not all of his benefits, the things he does and has done for us, who he is. You see, the psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving psalms are what they sound like. They are songs and prayers written to thank God for who he is and what he's done. And this psalm makes it clear that we're not to forget all these things. And this is what I mean when I say this psalm has always served as a reminder of who God actually is. Because the psalm takes great efforts to talk about and list out who God is. And the, song, uh, the psalmist begins by listing off all these amazing qualities of God. You'll see them as you go down the page. He's the one who forgives all your sins, who crowns you with love and compassion. And the list just keeps going on and on and on. And it's almost like a thesis statement in an essay or, or a trailer for a movie. It's, it's the first stanza of this psalm. It's kind of like a highlight of the things that are to come. It's talking about uh, who God is, and he's going to draw those things out. Um, Now, with this said, it's obviously not a thesis statement or an essay, what we're reading here. This is poetry, and so the things that the psalmist talks about, they're all kind of intermingled together. They're they're woven together like this beautiful tapestry. Let's be clear, the psalm is not a systematic walkthrough about the attributes of God. No, themes and images and words, they mix, push, and pull together to create something that is pleasing to the ear and evoking to the imagination. 
Uh, David Alter, he's a professor that specializes in uh, biblical prose and poetry. He notes that the biblical poetry, uh, especially even in this psalm, is a mode of expression in which the surface is actually the depth. That is to say, the, the words and the images, the, the shape and the form, the syntax and the grammar, these things, though all simple on their own, they come together to give a depth and a wealth of meaning. The late Eugene Peterson, a professor and pastor, says that uh, poets, and he's referencing specifically the biblical ones here, poets use words to drag us into the depth of reality itself. In essence, guys, although uh, we usually, uh, in terms of the modern people we are, we consider poetry to be flowery and maybe full of exaggeration, there is a way in which um, poetry itself, like the Psalms, portray and show us the truth in the world in a more powerful way than prose or normal words ever could. It's not just a record of something or a truth that's being spoken or claimed. Poetry, and more broadly, art, highlights something that is true and beautiful in the reality of the world around us. And oftentimes, these true and beautiful things it pulls out are not something that we would just normally see on our own. Here's a silly example for you. It's a funny meme. It's a picture. It's one of my favorites. So the picture's going to come up on the screen. Um, it's one of my favorites. It's, it's, it's kind of funny, right? So this is the original photo. Uh, this is uh, what I think it looks like uh, when I'm at the beach, right? Um, but this other photo is what I actually look like when I'm at the beach. It's kind of funny, right? Ha, 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 very good. Um, what's, interesting, the, what's interesting here, the reason I bring it up, is the difference between the original photo and the painting, okay? What the painting is doing is highlighting the beauty that's seen in the reality of the photo. There is nothing untrue about the painting. And I get it, hold with me. I know it's just a funny picture thinking, Wes, why does it matter? But hold with me for a second. There is nothing untrue about the painting. Yes, it exaggerates things, but there's a purpose to it. It's to show there's beauty of the nature, there's beauty in the nature that we're looking at. Yes, it's for the purpose of a joke, but it's still doing that. Now, that's a silly example, but here's a very real example. It's gonna come up on the screen. This would be Van Gogh's Starry Night. A very famous painting. This painting is full of exaggeration and overly drawn items. And it's heralded as one of the uh, best paintings ever, right? You, you talk to many people, it, it might be even Van Gogh's most amazing uh, painting himself. Uh, but you see, the, the stars of Starry Night, Van Gogh in that moment when he's drawing those is emphasizing and showing order to the world of the stars. Something that we might not actually see when we look up at them. Again, Van Gogh is doing what artists do. He's drawing out and highlighting a truth of the, uh, out of the reality that we see in the world. And the biblical poets, guys, are doing the exact same thing with their artwork. Today, the, the, the truths that we're looking at, I'll be honest, are not mind-blowing truths. They're going to be simple, uh, rudimentary, in fact. The, the stuff the psalmist says, you've actually, you've heard it before. But what's unique, hopefully, is the way in which the psalmist says it. Um, Percy Shelley, he, he's a famous romantic poet that lived a, a while back, puts it like this. Uh, poetry is a mirror which makes beautiful that, is, uh, that which is distorted. In a world, as we describe, where oftentimes our ideas of God can, be, can become so distorted by the experiences that we've had, uh, my prayer and hope today is that this poetry, this psalm, would, hope you see, uh, would help you see again how beautiful God is by showing you who he truly is. And so we're going to jump into the first part of our psalm that we're going to look at today, that we're going to focus on today. And it begins in verse 8, and it reads like this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. 
as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now, what this passage is saying is pretty straightforward, that God is full of grace and abounding in love. We know his love for us because he doesn't treat us as we deserve to be treated. But again, like we said, we can often know these truths, but oftentimes because of what's going on in their lives, uh, they can become distorted or hard for us to see. And that's why I want to focus on these two last verses because they offer some beautiful imagery and poetry that help us better see and experience just how true these things are. Because let's be honest, that God loves us and has forgiven us can be one of the first things we forget about in times of trouble. I mean, some of you are sitting here right now and for whatever reason you have convinced yourselves uh, that the sins that you've committed, they are just too much for God. That God, for some reason, because of what you've done, uh, doesn't love you or want you because of the things that you've done. Uh, Some of you are in here right now with a burden on your shoulders and you have been in church forever. You are carrying this burden. And maybe for you, this is a sin from a long, long time ago. A wrongdoing that you've never been able to truly look yourself in the eye for. And maybe it's something a little more recent. Maybe during our lockdown times as a nation. Uh, Whenever it is, somehow or some way because of it, because of this weight of shame, uh, because of it, there is a weight of shame that you carry. You've convinced yourself because of these things that God doesn't have time for you, even though you've been in the church and you've heard the idea that God loves you. But listen to this psalm again. It can help you understand uh, what, the truth of, uh, what the truth about God is. Um, this is what I'm talking about when I reference poetry. It's a language that speaks to our hearts. It bypasses our walls and our defenses. It slips by the false rationales and lies that we live by uh, and we use to convince ourselves of all these things. In verse 10 and onwards, it reads this specifically. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And listen in here. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Again, this imagery and the words used by the poet, by the psalmist, they're powerful. Imagine for a moment the directions of east and west. Even just close your eyes for a moment. Just imagine the directions of east and west. See in your head, imagine a compass. And ask yourself the question, when will the, the directions of east and west on this compass ever meet? I'm not talking about a globe here. There, there's no circle, it doesn't wrap around. I'm asking about the directions. When do they meet? They don't. They never will. They are two directions that will never intersect. East and west will never connect. They can never be together. And the psalmist is saying that this is how far God has removed your sins from you. It's this powerful imagery that draws out this truth to our hearts. The sin that you did all those years ago that you still can't swallow. The sins that you routinely routinely commit that you can't break free from. The sin from this week that you still feel shame from. The psalmist is saying that God has put that sin as far as the east is from the west. As far as the east is from the west. They can never be connected. That sin never again, never again will be part of your life according to this psalm. That's incredible. Now, you might still say, but you don't know, Wes, what I've done. The, the psalmist would not say, okay, uh, would say that this is okay, but, but listen then to what the psalmist has to say, okay? The psalmist says, okay, look, if that's you, if you're still struggling with this idea about how much God has forgiven you, think about this then. Imagine, close your eyes for a moment, how high the heavens are above the earth. 
close your eyes and look to the sky. See how far above it is, uh, above you it is. Imagine yourself as an ancient Israelite. Electricity, motors, planes, they were a far off dream. No one could have imagined the idea that one, way, one day we would fly into the sky. And so to them, the sky could never, ever be reached. Now you can open your eyes. Look, it was forever above the earth, the sky, and the heavens. And this is what the psalmist is saying. This unreachable, this unmeasurable, this unfathomable distance is how great and how big God's love for you is. Even in light of your sin, because God has blotted out your transgressions and he does not treat us as we deserve to be treated. He is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. God's love for you is so incredibly and unmeasurably great. And so getting back to what we were talking about earlier, if this is you today, if you're struggling with sin and the weight that, it, that you carry because of it, if because of your sin you have run from God, if because of your sin you have seen us, God as somebody to be feared, then know today that God is first and foremost a loving and forgiving God. Core to his identity is, is, is those two things, that he is loving and forgiving. You are loved beyond your wildest dreams. Through what Jesus has done, God has truly removed forever and ever the sins in your life. And I, I hope these images and words can help you understand and actually experience that a little more today. I hope it dives deep into your hearts today. You see, uh, this psalm is actually ascribed to David. Whether he wrote it or not, or it was written about him, nobody's really sure. Many commentators in the psalm um, uh, you know, argue about it. But either way, it's either written by him or about him. Um, but people uh, think that this, this psalm was actually written with his moment uh, with Bathsheba in mind. Um, you know, the, the, the woman whose husband he murdered so he could be with her. An appalling moment, but it's this moment that we're to have in mind when the psalmist says that God is abounding in love and overwhelmingly gracious. It's in the light of actually that sin. God still, in light of that sin, passionately loves David. God still, in spite of that egregious moment, that disgusting and awful thing that David did, still apparently passionately loves David. And in light of your own sin, no matter how awful you might think it is, when you turn to God and you repent, you can know that your Father in heaven truly loves you and you are truly forgiven. And that's why the first point I want to make is this. No matter what your experience or your feelings towards him are today, the truth of the matter is this. God is a loving God. And the psalmist says that this is seen through the grace and forgiveness that he gives us. You see, I wasn't kidding when I said that the truths that we're going to talk about today were simple truths. They're incredibly simple. But they're profound. And they can be so easily forgotten in the world that we live in today. And that's why we're talking about them. Now, the psalmist continues on from here. Because he actually moves on to, uh, on at this point, to a different image to highlight and bring out another point that he wants, he wants to make. Again, this is poetry. The images are brought together and they're mixed before us. It's not a clean story or a novel, nothing like that. It's more like a tapestry being woven together. And immediately the psalmist moves on to this other image. Uh, this comes right after, like directly after these images of the heavens and the east to the west. And he says this in verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. That's such a beautiful image. A father's parents, in fact, um, you all understand what he means when he says these words. 
as a father has compassions on his own child. As a father's heart leaps when he sees his kid. As a father cares for his children, so the Lord cares for his own. What's interesting to note, though, as we begin to break down, as we begin to uh, break down this imagery, is that the word that is being used, compassion, this word appears four times in reference to God in this psalm. Now, Hebrew is a Semitic language, and so it's actually a quite small language in terms of the number of words that you can find in it. There are only about 8,000 or so words in it. Uh, to put it into perspective, uh, in English, we have about 170,000 words that we can choose from. Now, of course, we don't use all of those, but on average, a person has a vocabulary of 20 to, to 35,000 words that they, could, that they kind of know and use on a, a daily and uh, weekly basis. Now, what's even more interesting about Hebrew is that it is a, a triconsonantal language, which means all of the words stem off of, stem off of three consonants. So of all the 8,000 words you can use, there are only about 2,000 combinations of consonants uh, that are used to make those 8,000 uh, 8, words, uh, which means that there are a lot of overlap, um, and a lot of them are actually connected in their meaning. It's the vowels that change to change the meaning of the words, but the consonants uh, overlap a ton. Now, not always, but, but very often, uh, because of this, they're very closely related in meaning, and sometimes when you use a word, there can be a bit of a, a play on words, and, and actually, David's kind of doing that right here. You see, the word used for compassion here has a root word that means womb. So the, the, the base word in terms of the consonants, if you had the standard vowels with it, means womb. The psalmist is actually kind of using a, a poetic device of, of a, a play on words. It's actually, um, when he says compassion, he's actually referencing a motherly kind of love here. The word has a wide range of meanings in terms of how you can stretch it. And in fact, often the word can be translated to even as, as mercy or pity. The word compassion here is actually meant to denote the, the parental, the, the fatherly, but even motherly care and feelings that, that God has towards us. God loves us and has compassion for us like a mother and even a father does for his child. It's this parental care that the, the author is using to describe here. Now, I highlight this because time and time again, I've heard and seen from both students um, that, I, that I, I minister to and even adults, um, this pain that is caused when people are, are told uh, that God is their father, when they see God in light of a parental role. This is something that I've seen intensely distorted in our culture. Again, we mentioned at the beginning that the experiences that we've had have an effect on how we view God. And so this is true when it comes to our parents, those who have been above us. Some of you sitting in, in your, your homes right now cringe at the thought of God as father. You cringe at the thought because your father or mother was or maybe is abusive. And you hate the idea that God is your heavenly father or that God cares for you like a mother because, you know what, yours never did. I've seen this over and over and over again. And for those of you for, this is uh, for who this is true, you associate God with what you've experienced. And deep down, you believe that God doesn't really have compassion on you because mom and dad never really did. Or maybe for you, God feels far. He feels isolated because when you hear that he's a heavenly father, your heart breaks because your earthly father was never around. Or maybe it's because of your life, the experiences that you had because of those. You can't trust God as a heavenly father. Whatever your earthly parents have done, uh, they've broken your trust, and so you believe that you can't trust God as well. Look, whatever it is for you, I don't know what it is, but you do. This passage is trying to say that God is a good father. He loves and has compassion as a mother uh, would. He loves and has compassion as a father would. He is a good and loving parent. And the proof for this is actually seen in these next few verses that come up. 
the psalmist builds on the imagery. He, he starts with this, but he adds more, and it shows how God is truly a good heavenly father. Verse 14, it writes this, for he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we're dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They, they flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over, and it's gone, and it's place remembers it no, no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. God knows how we're formed. He knows in essence how small and delicate our lives are. He understands how quick it goes for us and the fragility of it. The idea here is that God actually understands the plight that we have and it moves him. And his love and response never leaves us through our lives, though they might be short and full of strife. You see, the image here, the, the kind of love and compassion that God has, it actually invokes the story between that of, of Jesus and Mary when Lazarus was dying. The two sisters, Mary and Martha, they send off for Jesus, but Jesus doesn't arrive in time. And you get this scene where Mary breaks down into tears in front of Jesus, and he begs him to revive her brother. And as Jesus gets to the tomb and sees the whole scene in front of him, he breaks down into tears himself and weeps. Jesus would go on in the moment to raise Nat Lazarus, but in the moment beforehand, in the brokenness and the pain, Jesus weeps and cries out too. He empathizes and understands the pain around him. He shows compassion. One theologian describes it like this. If love is the assurance of the constancy of his fidelity, in other words, if love is the assurance of God's commitment towards his own, the complement of love is divine compassion as that quality by which God as Heavenly Father empathizes with human frailty. For those of you who feel that God is far or God has abandoned you in your plight or in your struggle with whatever has gone on in your life, for those of you who feel that your earthly parents have not lived up to the title, know that you have a loving and compassionate Father in Heaven who is there for you and actually cares about you. And this is the second answer to our question, what is God truly like? Well, regardless of the experiences or the feelings that you might have, God truly is compassionate. The psalmist through his poetry and words here is trying to convey that God truly cares about your life and actually understands the tensions that you find yourself in. Now, we're running out of time at this point, but as we close here, I want to tell you a story about our student, uh, a student in, in our ministries at, at Gateway. And for his privacy's sake, I'm going to keep his name confidential, but the student was with us at a worship event. And actually, at this event, it was kind of a, a chill session, and I was leading the worship at the time. It was just kind of me singing and a bunch of students who were kind of in the room with me. And we all had these students here, and I, I kind of asked the students in between the songs. We had sung one song, and uh, we sung a couple, actually, a couple at this point, and we were kind of at a point where, you know, things had slowed down a bit, and we were quieting down. And between two songs, I kind of said to them, uh, you know, just call out and say who God is to you. And all these students started saying words like King and Love and Emmanuel and Prince of Peace and all these wonderful names. Uh, but one of my students, uh, the one in the story here who uh, at this time was relatively new to his faith, he didn't say anything out loud. Instead, in a, in a room full of his peers, he whispered quietly under his breath, Abandoner. God, you're, you're an abandoner. You've left me alone. You don't love or care for me. You see, this guy has had a tough life, and, and he's coming from a bit of a, a rough family past, to say the least. Violence and homelessness has been a large part of his life. The guy's only 18. And when I asked people to call out who God uh, was 
to him because of the experiences that he felt. He believed God had left him. He believed God had abandoned him. He did not experience the love and compassion that we're talking about here. But the amazing part of the story is that according to him, the moment he said that word to God, another student from the group that he didn't know at the time reached out, put a hand on his shoulder and said, hey, I don't know why. I, I have no idea why, but I, I think and I feel like God wants me to tell you that he's close to you and that he loves you. See, in that moment, the truth of God broke into that student's reality. Whatever he had experienced, whatever he had thought of God, in that moment right there, it changed. And my prayer and hope for you today is that today, right now, as you go on from this message, as you're listening here, that the truth of God would break into your reality. My prayer is that you would understand today and the next day after that, that God truly is a loving and compassionate God. As you read a psalm like Psalm 103, as you explore different psalms, as you explore the scriptures, my prayer is that the Spirit would enliven and open your minds to the reality of who God is. Today we learn the simple truth that God is loving and compassionate. And my prayer for you is that in the upcoming weeks that you would experience this. As the Apostle Paul said, I pray my hope, uh, and, and as the Apostle Paul said, and I pray for you, my, my hope for you is that you would be convinced neither in death nor life, neither uh, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, let, me, let me pray, Ben Brooke. Uh, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are the father of love. God, you are love, but you are the one who loves us so intimately and deeply, God. You have so much compassion, God, on us. And Lord, I realize that there's some people in this room, uh, well, in this room, in their homes, God, uh, who don't feel that right now and who don't see that. And so, Jesus, uh, Father, I just want to do one thing right now. I just want to give you time to speak uh, to Bimbrook, right now where they are in their homes. We're just going to do a bit of listening. Uh, Father, if there's something you want to say in these next 30 seconds as we listen in uh, to what you have to say to us, would you just whisper encouragement to our hearts? Uh, Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes and ears to hear? And Father, would you speak to us powerfully? Would you tell us of the love that you have for us? And so, Bimbrook, I just want to encourage you. Keep your eyes closed, but just listen uh, for the Father's encouragement and the love that he uh, desires to show you. Father, thank you for the encouragement. And to any of those who are out there who still feel discouraged, who still are wondering about your love and compassion, God, would you convince them in these days and weeks that it is true and how much uh, you truly do love them. Amen. I've been broke as I was listening. I was listening for you guys, and I felt uh, just the immense weight of God's love for you guys. Uh, he truly does love you and you guys as a church. And uh, yeah, I'll leave you uh, with that. Uh, no so powerfully that God loves you. Uh, regardless of the situation or the circumstances that you find yourself in during a time like this, know that you have a Father in heaven who loves you and has compassion on you, Benbrook. Uh, have a good week.